Well, we continue in Matthew 18 this morning, and I want to bring you up to speed with where we're at. Uh, Matthew, as a book, is uh, it's, it's a sequence of narrative, telling a story, telling the story about Jesus, but then interspersed through it, Matthew has these five main teaching sections where Jesus takes his disciples aside and he teaches them about one topic or another. And uh, we've seen four, uh, three of these so far, and as we entered Matthew 18 last week, we talked about how this discourse, this Matthew 18 discourse teaching section is about how do you live together as the disciple community? Uh, Jesus has said that uh, because Israel has rejected him, because they have rejected him, he is going to build his assembly, his temple assembly. It's coming. He's going to build it out of people like Peter, who confessed him to be the Christ and will confess him to be the Savior, the one who dies for his people's sin. But the question arises, and while Jesus is still with his disciples before going to the cross and rising again, while he's still with them, he wants to explain for them how do you live together? How do you live together in community? How do you live together as a church? How do you live together as a local church? And so a lot of what Jesus runs through in chapter 18, it's giving principles, it's giving mindsets, dispositions uh, for how you live together as a community of disciples. And really, chapter 18, is, it's, it's framed by two questions. First question from the disciples. Each of the two questions comes from the disciples. First question came last week in 18.1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? That's the first question, and Jesus has been addressed that question. In 1 through 4, he addressed the question of, you. he took a child uh, someone, a child maybe four, five, six, seven years of age, stood them in the midst. A child who's the, lowly, the lowliest in that society, the low person on the totem pole, and said, you need to lower yourself like this child. Because if you don't, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But if you do, then you're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you exercise and you show dependence, dependence on the Father, if you seek his honor, not your own, like you are when you ask the question, who's the greatest, you show that lowliness, that dependence upon the Father, then you're going to enter and you're going to be the greatest. If you don't, if you don't become like a child, you don't lower yourself, you don't show that dependence, you don't seek the Father's honor above your own, then you're not going to even enter. But then from that, Jesus, uh, in verses 5 through 7, shifts focus. He, he talks about, okay, you as a disciple, what sort of mindset are you supposed to have? One of lowliness, one of absolute dependence on the Father. But then he switches gears and he uh, it talks about how the disciples, how those little ones, and Jesus uses the metaphor of children to talk about the genuine disciples. So he's doing that throughout. And he shifts focus for how others view a disciple. And he talks about if someone, you need to, if, if someone welcomes one such child, what is he talking about? He's talking about a genuine disciple of Jesus. So, someone who welcomes such a dependent disciple, 
is going to welcome me. But if you ensnare that child, that disciple, that genuine disciple, then it's going to be better for you to have a great millstone hung around your neck and drowned into the sea because God's judgment is coming for you. God values his little ones, his children, his genuine disciples so much that if you welcome them, you're receiving him, and if you ensnare them, you face his judgment. Which led Jesus to talking in verses 8 through 9 about not only, okay, don't, uh, you need to worry about not ensnaring a genuine disciple, but then for yourself, the sin issues that are in your own heart, the sin issues that cause you to be ensnared as a disciple, as a professing disciple, you need to deal with those radically so that you do not face God's fiery judgment for eternity, but experience life, life in the kingdom. And that leads us into our section this morning, and we're still in kind of the first half of Jesus' teaching section. It's going to go through verse 20, and really it's interesting. We, we, we often go to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, because it's a section on church discipline and how do you exercise church discipline. And that is true. That is what it's about. But it's said in this context, and specifically even what we're going to see today in 10 through 14, it's connected to the ideas of how God values his genuine disciples, those who are like children in exercising dependence and trust and lowliness. And so what we're going to see today, we're actually only going to get through 10 through 14, um, it's one of those conundrums that it looks like we're going to get through 20, and then it didn't, and so we're just going to stick with 10 through 14, and then next week's Christmas, so I'm not going to preach on church discipline on Christmas, and then I'm not going to preach on church discipline on January 1st, so we'll come back to 15 through 20 um, after all of that, but what I, I wanted Jim to read through verse 20, and I want you to see um, even the beginnings of the connections between 10 through 14, which we're, we're going to focus on this morning, and 15 through 20. You see, 15 through 20 works because of the attitude in 10 through 14. So even as I give you the big idea this morning, I'm going to give the big idea for 10 through 20, the main idea for both sections, because I want you to see how they're connected. What is the big idea for Matthew 18, 10 through 20? It is this, you must not despise straying disciples, but seek their repentance through the means of individual and assembly correction. You must not despise straying disciples, but seek their repentance through the means of individual and assembly correction. And as we look at verses 10 through 14, we focus in on one of those ideas encapsulated in the big idea, which is this. Seek, don't despise straying disciples. Seek, don't despise straying disciples. Look at verse 10. So Jesus is still talking on the basis of that, 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 that initial question, who's the greatest? And he's been showing what the value is of little children, uh, genuine disciples that are dependent like children, lowly like children. This is what Jesus says in that context. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples, the professing disciples, those who have 
repented. They've turned their allegiance from sin and self. They have followed the Messiah. They believe in who he is, or at least they're professing that. And he's talking to all of them. That's plural use here in the text. See that you, you all, see that you all don't despise one of these little ones. And again, that phrase of little ones, that's the metaphor that Jesus is using for genuine disciples. Every genuine disciple, if they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's got to lower themselves like a child. That's what he said back up in 18, 1 through 4. And so he's continuing with that metaphor. And so he's still talking about genuine disciples. But he's talking to other disciples about how they view them. And in this case, he's saying, he's giving a command, see, watch out that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't look down on them. You see, remember their question. Their question was, who is the greatest in the kingdom of, heaven, uh, in the, uh, the kingdom of the heavens? And Jesus, uh, or th- we said that, that that question presupposes a couple things. It presupposes an interest in self-promotion, and it also presupposes a comparison amongst one another. And Jesus is still disarming that and, uh, and, and changing that. Because if you have that mindset, if you have the mindset of self-promotion and the comparison game amongst disciples, which is what their question presupposed, then it's very likely you're going to despise a fellow disciple. If you play the game of, I want to promote self, I want to be on top, like the world plays. I mean, that's the game the world plays, isn't it? The corporate world, uh, whatever realm you can think of, the world plays that game of, I want to get on top, I want to be the best, I want to be the greatest then what are you going to do? You're going to climb over the top of people. You're going to despise those around you. You're going to see them as means to an end of your own self-promotion. And so Jesus is continuing to disarm that mindset in the disciples. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, a genuine disciple that has lowered themselves, that exercises dependence on the Father, that's a, the, a child of the Father. Why? Jesus gives a reason. He gives support. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is giving a reason why they're not supposed to despise genuine disciples. Um, Why is that? And he gives a reason that I don't think uh, we would expect at all. He says, for I tell you, and and Jesus is highlighting the reason that he gives. He's talking about a reality in heaven, and he talks about their angels. Now, who's the there? The there is the, 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 uh, the, the little ones, the disciples, genuine disciples. And he's saying there are angels paired with these little ones, uh, with these disciples. And what does that mean? mean? What, what is he talking about? He doesn't explain it at all here, and in fact, it's, it's kind of incidental to, to the, the, what he's trying to establish. So we need to do a little bit of work in thinking about what, what, what could Jesus be talking about here with their angels? Because we need to understand that to be able to understand how this is a support for why you shouldn't despise genuine disciples. Well, what you see as you look across the scriptures, if you look through the Old Testament and into the New as well, is that you see angels, heavenly messengers, the the term angel just means messenger, 
When we think about angels, we're thinking about heavenly messengers, generally speaking, and that's who's in view here. You see heavenly messengers acting on behalf of God, being sent from his presence to do things on behalf of his people. Now, usually when you see angels acting, they are acting uh, for God's people corporately. So you can watch in, say, even the Exodus accounts, how God sends one particular messenger from heaven, um, but also elsewhere, the idea of angels protecting God's corporate people. But occasionally, you also see angels, heavenly messengers, uh, working on behalf of God's individual people. For example, if you were to go to Daniel, which is a book that has several angels present, you see in, say, Daniel 6, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den unjustly, and then God preserves him, and the king comes to him in the lion's den, and Daniel says, my God sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions um, to protect me. And so there you see not only an angel working on behalf of God's people, that's true, but also on behalf of an individual. You see elsewhere that idea uh, in a couple places in Scripture. Turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And in fact, Psalm 91 has been used in Matthew. And Psalm 91 is all about for one who trusts in God, uh, one who fears God, one who's walking in God's ways, uh, it describes how God preserves them, how God protects them. And you scroll down to verse 11. In Psalm 91, in that context, says this, For he, this is God, for he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And it's a, uh, it's a poetic way of describing God, for those who are walking in his ways, uh, he sends uh, he sends angels to protect them. It's a reality, and you can see examples like Daniel in the book, uh, in in, um, in in the scriptures. Now, you might remember that that psalm was actually quoted by the devil in relation to Jesus in uh, Matthew four. He, the devil, misapplied it, but it doesn't negate the reality and the affirmation that God does use angels, heavenly messengers, not only to guard and protect his corporate people, but also individuals, also individuals who are his. In fact, you can read in Hebrews 1.14, turn there if you want, or you just listen, it's one verse, but Hebrews 1.14 discusses the same reality. In Hebrews 1, the author is seeking to prove how Jesus, as the Son of God, is superior to angels. Angels are messengers. He's proving that the Son is superior because he's proving that the Son is a superior messenger to angels. But in the midst of that, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.14 says this, are they, not, they referring to angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So one of the prime functions of angels is to serve on behalf of those who are God's people who are walking in his ways. Now the reality is, is that we don't see all of that. Uh, angels are spirits. They reside in a heavenly realm, a spiritual realm that uh, is active. That is true. It is active. It is 
uh, around us. We know we have an enemy in the devil and his fallen angels, but God uses true and holy angels to protect his people. We don't necessarily see it. We don't even know all of what that looks like, but we do know that the scriptures affirm that that's a reality. And I believe that is what Jesus is talking about back in Matthew 18. Let's read that one more time. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, and he's talking about a genuine disciple. For I tell you that in heaven there, angels, so these disciples' angels, always, so continually is the idea, see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's the idea about these angels seeing the face of the Father? Well, I think it's encapsulating and kind of saying that idea. They're there for readiness. The angels are in God's presence, and they're there for readiness before his face to do what? To act on God's behest for the sake of his people, his disciples, those who know him. Now, why is Jesus bringing this up? His whole point is to support the idea of why you don't despise one of these little ones. You don't despise, you don't look down on a genuine disciple. Why? Because that genuine disciple has some sort of angel assigned to them in heaven, ready to act on, their, uh, on, on the Father's behalf for that individual who belongs to the Father. So what's it doing? Jesus is giving this reason to highlight the value that the Father places on a genuine disciple. He has angelic resources backing up their walk as a disciple. It's highlighting that value. The Father views the disciples, genuine disciples, with such value, he uses the ministers, angelic spirits, to minister on, on his behalf, for their behalf. And so you dare not look down. You dare not despise a disciple. And then Jesus uh, builds on this idea with a parable. He builds on this idea with a parable. Now, you might notice in your Bible, depending on what Bible you're reading, what translation you're reading, uh, that verse 11 is missing, or it's in brackets. Uh, so in the ESV, it's missing completely. It just goes from 10 to 12. Um, and if you've got an NASB, it's in brackets. Uh, if you've got a KJV or an NKJV, it's probably not bracketed, and it, uh, verse 11 is sitting right there. So what's going on? Let's just take this very briefly. Uh, you understand that uh, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek, and we have hundreds and thousands of, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands of Greek manuscripts from a wide variety of times and places, and that we are able in God's providence to take these manuscripts and reconstruct what the original authors wrote in the New Testament with a great degree of confidence. And so here's what's going on. Some later manuscripts have verse 11 inserted, which says something like, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, which is true because Luke says that. And in fact, that's probably what happened is a scribe took the idea from Luke and he plopped it right in between verses 10 and 12 in the original manuscripts. But because we have so many manuscripts, we can look at them, we can compare them, we can look at the earlier ones, we can discern, yeah, verse 11 wasn't there in the original of Matthew's gospel. It goes right from 10 to 12. That's all you need to know about it. So let's, go, um, let's keep going then. Now, like I said, what is Jesus doing? He's saying, you dare not despise one of these disciples because of the value the Father places on them in heaven. 
He's got angelic resources backing it up. And then uh, Jesus supports this with a parable. Verse 12, what do you think? Which is just a rhetorical question to get the disciples engaged in the thinking process. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, okay, so now we're talking about um, someone who owns these sheep. So this guy is an owner. Uh, as we will see, he's also the shepherd. So here's an owner-shepherd of a flock. Now, in that time, uh, in the first century, 100 sheep's quite a bit of sheep. Uh, it's more than you would need for just subsistence and living. It's quite a bit of sheep. Uh, so this guy is probably a man of means, fairly well-to-do to buy and to own this amount of sheep. We go on. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray gone astray. So the sheep has left the flock. It's out there wandering. And Jesus says this. So let's suppose that's happening. And then he asks a question, another rhetorical question. Does he, this owner shepherd, not leave the 99 on the mountains, on the hills, and go in search of the one who went astray? And the way Jesus is asking this question, he's expecting a yes answer. He's like, just think about an owner-shepherd. So this is a fairly familiar scenario to the disciples. Just think of an owner-shepherd. He's got 100 sheep, so he's got quite a bit of sheep. And uh, one of them goes away. So 1% of your wealth just went off that way. If you watch the stock market, you know this happens really easily, right? Uh, your wealth goes astray pretty quickly. But um, what, what, what is Jesus saying? He points out the fact that well, isn't this guy going to go off in pursuit of that one? Isn't he going to leave uh, the, the rest of the 99 on the hills and go look for that one? And he's expecting an answer of yes. Of course the guy is going to do that. But if you think about that for a minute, that's kind of odd, isn't it? It's kind of odd. Because, wait a minute, I've got these 100 sheep on the hillsides. One of them's gone astray, so I've got 99 left. Now, it could be because this guy has is a man of means, he might have other under-shepherds or partner-shepherds with him, so he can go and look while the, rest, the other shepherds are taking care of his flock, but Jesus doesn't say that. He's actually highlighting and raising the tension between the one and the 99. That's part of the point of the parable, because what do you do if you leave the 99 there on the hillsides to go chase after the one who would astray? What does it seem like your risk is? Well, you could lose uh, you know, a lot more than just one if you just leave the 99 on the hillsides. It's kind of odd, but Jesus expects, even from his disciples, hey, if you think about this, isn't a shepherd going to do that? Well, yeah, he is, because what? Because the sheep is of great value to him. The sheep is of great value. And so we see the owner-shepherd do this, verse 13, and if he finds it, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that went astray, which is just odd. Again, so he finds the sheep. That's great. And of course, we would expect that he rejoices over this sheep. He brings the sheep back. But again, Jesus is highlighting the tension between the 99 and the one and he's saying he's going to rejoice over that one. He's going to rejoice over, over that one more than over the 99 who didn't go astray. And it's 
real world behavior, we could expect that this would happen, and yet there's that tension between the group that doesn't stray and the one who does. That's the picture. Now Jesus gives us the means of interpreting the parable in verse 14. So, or in this manner. So he's pointing back and saying, okay, in the manner I just described to you in the parable, in that same way, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So that helps us say, all right, in Jesus' parable, the owner-shepherd is the father, and um, he, uh, his will is not that one of these little ones, and again, remember little ones is a metaphor for a, any genuine disciple, because a genuine disciple has to lower themselves like a little one, exercise dependence on the father, uh, exercise dependence on the son. But the father is saying, or the Jesus is saying, just like what happened in the parable, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And now we kind of understand more, especially given the context of what we saw in 18.1 through 9, where heaven and hell are at stake. Uh, Jesus is saying, uh, it's not the Father's will that any one of these should stray uh, and perish and be destroyed and experience God's judgment. And so now we understand that the idea of straying in the parable is the idea of a genuine disciple because it's a sheep being led astray into sin. Or if you were to go back up a couple verses in uh, 8 and 9, he's talking to disciples about not being ensnared into sin. And so here what we see is a genuine disciple, a little one, who goes astray into sin, and we see what? The Father's heart. That is where the emphasis lies. That the Father values the individual so much that he seeks, he puts resources behind seeking this individual stray disciple to what? Bring them back because of the value he places on them. And see how this reasoning works with the disciples. What does this all start with? Verse 10, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. Well, if someone's straying, a professing disciple is straying, uh, it's the easiest thing in the world as the group to write them off. Well, they're straying, well, we only lost one. It's the easiest thing in the world to write that one off. And Jesus says, you don't dare do that as the group because look at how much the Father values such a straying one. And now we start to transition into thinking, okay, about application. Remember, this is all about how do you act in the community of disciples. So we see this, and at focus in all of this is the Father's heart. The Father's heart, the Father's valuation of individual disciples. Here's the reality of um, being a believer in Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. Um, there is both a corporate side of it and an individual side of it. And if you think about just that, that, that dichotomy in society, is the corporate reality more important than the individual? Or is the individual more important than the corporate? And you can think of different cultures and different um, places and times 
where they've answered that question differently. You can look at different cultures to say, you exist to serve the state. You exist to serve the family. The corporate reality is more important than the individual. So you can think of historically or look around, and you can see examples of that. You can also look at other societies, and particularly our culture and our society, that says, no, the individual is more important than the corporate. That's why we have what we have right now, where not only can I, do I need to um, express my beliefs, uh, but I also need the whole corporate reality to affirm my individual beliefs. Why? Because the individual is king. But you see how there's a tension there. Is the individual more important or is the corporate more important? Both are important in Christianity. Both are important in following Jesus. On the one hand, you see in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, um, I will build my assembly, my church. And what we said there is the, the, the Messiah, the Davidic king, is a temple builder. And what the, the imagery is in Matthew 16 is that he's building his temple. And he's building his temple of individual stones. And there's a reality of the corporate aspect, a temple assembly, the church coming together, that uh, there is bigger realities happening there in the corporate sense than can be accomplished by an individual. But then we come to this text in Matthew 18, and we see uh, the father leaving the 99, the majority of the corporate reality, sitting on the hillside to what? To go after this individual straying disciple, a genuine disciple who's straying because the individual is so important. And so there's a tension. Does God value the corporate? Yes, absolutely. You cannot undervalue the corporate reality of the church. Jesus is building a temple assembly, and so he is doing something by constituting a corporate body, the church, and so you must value and love and be committed to the church and to the family. You cannot be an individual Christian at the expense of the church and your responsibility to it. You can't just say, well, I'm going to go out in the woods and get my experience of God there in that way, because now you're neglecting part of the responsibility that Jesus himself values. He values the corporate. But nor can you say, uh, well, uh, the, the, the church is so important that it doesn't really matter what happens to the individuals. No, you can't do that either because the Father and Jesus value each individual dis disciple. They're, putting, they're backing it with seeking such disciples that might stray. They're backing it with angelic resources. So the Father and Jesus value each individual disciple no matter how weak or wayward and so must we. We cannot value the corporate to such a point where we despise the individual. And there's a tension there, and you can't snap the tension one way or the other. You can't value the corporate over the individual, nor can you value the individual over the corporate. Both are true. Now, we have a temptation. We're preloaded. We live in an individualistic society where the individual is king. It's all about me, and everyone better bow down to me and what my desires are. So we're already preloaded to snap that rubber band on the individualistic side of things, which is one of the reasons I've been trying to emphasize um, as we preach through and as it comes up in the text, the corporate reality. But both are true. Both are there. 
You can't value the corporate over the individual, nor can you value the individual over the corporate because God values each individual and also he loves his church. Both are true. And that's, like I said, is the focus of this text. And what I want you to see from this text, I want you to see the Father's heart. It is amazing. The Father's heart to rescue those who are His, they belong to Him, but they're straying. That's amazing. You, the picture is of a genuine believer who is in sin, who is straying, who is far away, and the Father dedicates resources to rescue the individual. The Father doesn't write off a straying disciple but seeks them through various means to bring them back. Could be angels, and could be, essentially Jesus' argument from, uh, through 10 through 14, he's saying, if that's how the Father values disciples, and if you see a disciple straying, you, as a disciple, got to go after them. You have to. Because the Father values them so much, you also have to. And that's the idea, that the Father seeks individuals, he seeks straying disciples through the use of means to bring them back. What means? Well, I just said, individual disciples, they say, huh, that person's drifting. That person's going off into sin. Uh, I got, I have, because the Father values them so much, I got to go after them. I have to go after them. Which is exactly why right after verse 14, we get 15 which starts to talk about church discipline because church discipline starts with an individual seeking an individual. That's the point, is the Father loves individual disciples even when they stray, even when they are very wayward. He, if they're His, He loves them, and He's going to spare no expense to rescue them. And He uses the means of individuals, uses the means of the church to perform a rescue operation but it's all driven by the Father's heart. And see, he doesn't, you know, you've got a straying disciple, they're falling into sin, they're going off into sin. He does not allow them to, to, to he, he seeks them while they're in sin, but he does not continue to allow them to remain in sin. He seeks them while they are wayward and in sin, but he doesn't leave them there. What does he do? He gathers them, he brings them back. He brings them out of their straying. And you might ask the question, like, wait a minute, how can a holy God who hates sin, God hates sin, God hates sinners? He does, he says that. He hates sin and he hates sinners. So how can that God, as he's described in Psalm 5, who hates sin and hates sinners, how can that God seek Someone who is straying into sin. How can he devote such resources to seeking and bringing one back like this? How can he do it in justice? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Because he seeks his people. Who are his people? They are those who entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. They are the people that Jesus died for, atoned for, substituted for on the cross. Because what does Matthew one twenty one say? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
So even while an individual but genuine disciple is straying, the father can devote a massive resources to seeking that individual because that individual, being a genuine disciple, is seen through the lens of Christ. And Christ has paid for every sin of that, in, uh, that, is, that stands against that individual, including their straying, their active straying. He's wiped it out on the cross. Christ bore the eternal weight of wrath that that disciple deserved to bear. And more than that, the son has lived the righteous, perfect, obedient life in that disciple's place, such that the Father views that individual straying sheep through the lens of Christ and can devote all heavenly resources to rescuing that one. We understand from other scripture, John 10, the Father never loses sheep. He never loses a genuine disciple. He's elected them. He has chosen them before the foundation of the world. They are his. They belong to him. He predestined uh, and saw them from eternity past uh, being joined and brought into union with the Son. So he will never lose an individual disciple. He loves them, and he devotes resources to them. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we need to pursue those disciples who are straying and not write them off. If you're a disciple in this room, particularly if you're a member of Faith Bible Church, we are going to come after you. That's part of what it means to be a member. It means that you are submitting yourself to the corporate reality of the church in such a way that if you start to go off the rails, we know that the Father loves you and uh, you're starting to drift. We know what the father would do. He would leave the 99 and go after the one. We're going to come after you in love. And we're going to confront you on sin. That's what verse 15 says. If, one, uh, if your brother uh, sins, go and tell him his fault. We'll talk more about that um, when we come back after the first of the year. But notice the motivation of doing that. It's love. It's value. Because a disciple is so valuable to the father... I'm not going to leave you in your sin. I'm not going to avoid confrontation. I'm going to confront you because that's part of the means of God rescuing you. God uses means to call those straying to repentance. He uses his people. He uses the church. He uses confrontation. He uses church discipline. He uses means to rescue his people. Now, here's the reality. The parable is told from God's perspective, isn't it? God always knows who are his. He knows who his sheep are and who aren't. From our perspective, we don't know, do we? I can't look at you and absolutely beyond a doubt say that you are a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. There are signs. There are signals. But you might say, well, how do I know? How do I know should I go after this person or how should I not? Uh, should I not? I, are they a genuine disciple or are they make-believer? I don't know. The beautiful reality of the gospel is that it doesn't matter. Turn to Luke 15. You might have recognized your, this parable in Matthew. It's like, man, it seems like that's told somewhere else. Well, it is. It's told in Luke 15, but I want you to notice some differences. Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. 
And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Same basic parable, isn't it? Except there's a couple key differences. In Matthew, Jesus is talking to the disciples about straying disciples. In Luke, uh, he's, talking about, uh, he's talking to Pharisees about those who are entering, about those who are outside the community but are going to enter. In Matthew, Jesus is talking about those who are inside the community and stray. In, Matthew, uh, in Luke, uh, Jesus is talking about those who are outside the community coming in. And so the point that I'm trying to make with this is, you see someone straying, you see someone in sin, doesn't matter whether they're a believer or not from your perspective or whether you know that or not, the Father's heart is the same in each case. To proclaim the truth to proclaim the gospel, to call for repentance, to confront on sin, and to say, turn, turn from your sin. It's promising things that it will not deliver on. Come away from straying after false ideologies and thoughts. Humble yourself. Be utterly, utterly dependent on the, the work of Christ. The gospel is the same for a non-believer, a straying believer, or a faithful believer. No matter who you are, whether you're a non-believer, a straying believer, or a faithful believer, you need the gospel. And it's the same gospel that Jesus Christ died on behalf of uh, the sins of his people on the cross, such that if you entrust yourself to him, your debt will be wiped out. His righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the Son of God, will be counted to you and the Father will rejoice over you. And I want you to see that too, that the Father's heart means when he rescues you, whether that's initially you coming to faith in Christ or whether you've strayed as a believer and he rescues you again, the Father does not hold you at arm's length. You're not on parole. The Father rejoices over you. He delights in you. Because why? Because he sees you through the lens of Christ. He sees you through the lens of his son. This is my story, and I mean me. I was raised in a Christian uh, home. I was raised in a gospel-preaching church. I knew the facts of the gospel growing up. I professed faith in Christ when I was nine. I was baptized when I was 16, and I wanted to live for myself. And so I would do the church thing, and then I would... Uh, have my secret sins, and I would manipulate church stuff to make myself look good. I was not treasuring Christ, and so it all came to a head. I walked away. I walked away from the church. I walked away from Christ. And you know who pursued me? The church did. Friends in the church, family in the church, sharing the gospel with me, calling me to repentance, loving me practically, 
seeking, they, they loved me, but they didn't, they didn't let me get away with my sin. They called me to repentance. So I repented by God's grace, and yet, you know what happened? The same thing. I drifted again. I walked away again. And so now I'm utterly hopeless. There's not, God's not going to want someone who walked away twice. And yet, who sought me? Friends loved me, shared the truth with me. The church, I went, started going to church, hearing the truth preached. I started reading the scriptures, and God used all of those means because it wasn't just my friends and family that were seeking me. It wasn't just the church seeking me. It was God behind the scenes seeking me, showing mercy and patience and grace to draw me back to himself. the heart of a father to draw one, to save one back to himself. I tell you that not to draw attention to me, but to draw attention to God's faithfulness, his patience, his love, his rejoicing even over a lost sinner once they are rescued, and how he uses people and the church to do so. Seek, don't despise straying disciples. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for your mercy towards me. Um, I don't deserve it. I never will. Um, but I thank you. I thank you that, that you are that kind of father. You are that kind of shepherd. Praise you. Lord, Help us as your people never to despise a disciple, never to write someone off, even if they're straying, to go after them, to call them to repentance eagerly and earnestly, to confront on sin because we love them. Lord, I pray that you, I thank you that you will rescue all who are yours. You will never allow a genuine disciple straying to remain there, but to bring them back. And I thank you for those who are not yet yours, who haven't entered yet. You, you, call, you call us to speak to them. You call us to speak of your care, your love, your desire, and your joy over sinners who repent. Lord, I pray that we would speak, whether it's a non-believer, a straying believer, or a faithful believer, we all need the gospel again every day to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep walking in your way. Help us to live that reality. Help us to speak that reality. Help us to exercise it in this local church. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that your very incarnation is how expensive it is for a, the eternal God to become man the form of a baby, lowering yourself in utter dependence as a human child to rescue the lost, to rescue your people. God, your salvation is expensive. You put great resources behind saving those who are yours. And we thank you for that. We praise you. Help us to speak of you with joy. We thank you that you, re you rejoice over your people and you rejoice over repentant ones. Lord, if there are any here this morning who are not repentant, draw them to yourself through your love, through your massive heart. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.